So then Jesus, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. A couple things to talk about here. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. I sometimes tell people to hold up their left fist and look at the knuckles like this. Okay? And uh, very good. And then, uh, uh, note like this. The knuckles are facing you. And then your wedding ring is, or where it would be, would be Bethsaida. And then across the center line, which is the top of the Jordan River, the, the, the middle finger knuckle is Capernaum. So that's, how, that's your private map of the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum first, I'm sorry, Capernaum is the, is the middle finger. Bethsaida is the ring finger. Make sense? Okay. And on the map here, you see that those are the two more important cities. We don't really run into the other cities very often. I mean, you kind of want to know maybe where Magdala was, if you're talking about Mary Magdalene, because she was from there. But we never go there in the Bible, or Tiberias or Gennesaret, but there they are. Um, so Capernaum, though, was right on the shore. This is from a magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review. It's just an artist's rendition of the village of Capernaum, about the size that it was in Jesus' day. So how many blocks wide is that? Maybe three or four. And how many blocks long? Maybe 10. You know, it's not much bigger, or not much smaller, rather, than the village I grew up in. But this one is right on the waterfront. And the, uh, the key there, usually spelled Q-U-A-Y, like it's quay, but it's usually pronounced key, is the, the docks area. And you've got the various boats. This is a really good rendering of what the boats looked like on the Sea of Galilee. So single mast, usually square-stepped, Easy to haul up or haul down. Uh, even if one guy has to do it, he could probably do it. Um, but boats that are usually hauling a minimum of maybe six guys and a maximum for a bigger boat of maybe 20 to you know, fish with or whatever. Um, and some of the boats would have been used as taxis. Um, so we even today still have ferries. Most of our ferries, though, are for cars, aren't they? I think of the two ferry boats I've encountered. One is on Lake Michigan. It's a big one. And one is a little bitty one in Wisconsin. About eight miles from where I grew up is a, a little ferry called the uh, Merrimack Ferry. Crosses the Wisconsin River. And uh, you guys been on that one? And uh, how many cars? I seem to remember about two, maybe four. Is there? Is there? Okay. Yeah, but little bitty ones that kind of go across the, across the river. I know the Merrimack Ferry, uh, they're famously, it, it, it had to move because one of its predecessors sank. So it's, you can kind of see it down there in the water and you've got to be over here to cross and so forth. But kind of a fun thing to do on a summer day. Take the kids, you know, what's a cheap, you know, adventure? We'll go across the ferry. Then we'll drive home. Okay. You know. Yeah, and ice cream. Yep. See? Um, my friends from Columbus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now notice all the roofs here. Every roof, without exception in the picture, is a flat roof and just built on heavy, heavy beams. The kind of thing you can probably, if you had to, you know, could a thief cut through that? A thief or a compassionate friend with a, with a, with a paralyzed guy in a stretcher? 
right? That's where we're kind of coming to, although not yet. But look, if you look about in the middle of the picture to the left, you see a bigger structure with a little bit of an arch on it. Do you see that? That is this. This is the synagogue of Capernaum. And it's, that picture was based on, on the evidence we have of, of the ruins of Capernaum. And here you're standing in the gallery on the, I guess we would call it the left side of the, which would be the south side of the, of the synagogue. The middle area would have been raised up a little bit higher and would have had windows for indirect lighting to come in. Um, so a flat roof on top and then, but with uh, lighting all around and, uh, and pillars to hold that up. And uh, here you have some of the pillars. Some of the capitals, that's the top of a pillar, have been preserved and they kind of cut the pillar to just show that they still have the top at least. So they weren't really that short. They would have been all the way up, but that's the way ruins are sometimes. And then you see that there's, a, there's an azara or a doorway into a back chamber where they may have kept the biblical scrolls or something like that. And do you see the steps, the gallery on the left side? So you've got the ruins of the wall and then just two steps. So I, I imagine that the, the, the way that the children sit with me for a children's devotion on the bottom steps there of the, of the apse is the way that they would have sat here in the gallery. You know, they would have just maybe bought a blanket or something or a coat and sat on it and uh, on a couple of steps and some people on the floor and then some people in the middle would be standing um, and, uh, or sitting as they saw fit. But then they would have uh, the, the usual guy would come in for their synagogue worship and begin the service, usually with uh, invocation of God's name. They might say together their creed, which was Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would probably have a confession of sins and a reminder of God's forgiveness. They would probably sing a psalm or several um, as hymns. And then they would get to the scripture lessons. There would be a longer lesson from Moses and something else from um, one of the prophets and or possibly part of the history especially of Elijah and Elisha and that's what that would be their lesson they would then if they had one they would have a visiting rabbi uh, uh, expound on or explain one of the texts usually the Moses text the way that usually our sermons are on the gospels um, and they would they would do that and then they would after he's done then they would sing again probably then have prayers and maybe prayer for local people who are sick or whatever and then sing a last song and then go home. Does that sound familiar? It's basically still our outline for worship um, even today because our Christian worship is based on the synagogue outline. Um, so, some modifications were made here and there but some of the oldest parts of our liturgy um, go all the way back to the first or second century um, uh, for example, after the sermon is done, the latter part of the service begins where we have the Lord's Supper and it always begins with the Lord be with you and the congregation responds and also with you. That's one of the oldest pieces of the liturgy. Um, it comes naturally to us and, and uh, there it is. Um, Okay, that's the synagogue. This is a picture, an artist's rendition, but based on the archaeology of the area and the kind of stones they find in the bases. This is looking down at the lake, so looking south. And the, 
house on the left that has like that nice little canopy on, on the balcony there. And the steps, there's a, looks like a lady going up the steps with her wash or maybe something else and some kids playing in the yard. That's what is still to this day thought to be the Apostle Peter's house. So, um, about one block in from the big synagogue and near enough to the, to the, to the, to the quay where the boats are tethered because he was a fisherman. So, getting back to our text, we had a, uh, uh, what kind of soldier? Centurion. And let's just notice some things about a centurion. This is on the back of the sheet. Um, As I said, so a centurion, I'm going to work my way up from the centurion. A centurion was the highest ranking non-commissioned officer, which in the American army would be a sergeant. Okay? So above him, would be in our army it would be a lieutenant of some kind and there were five subordinate tribunes would be kind of like the lieutenants or maybe the captains and the camp prefect who we would probably refer to as like a major or something like that who would be responsible for the probably the organization and the administration of the camp and then there were two guys above him the senior tribune kind of like our colonel and above him, a legate who would be more like a general um, who was in overall charge. And by the way, the legate would have a tribune and then many centurions under him. But this is just from the stand- standpoint of a centurion. Who's above me, who's below me. That's all. Okay, so and when you get up, up above a centurion, then these guys would have other centurions and optiones and legions under them. But going down from the centurion... What's one step below a sergeant in our army? A two-stripe guy? Think of Klinger in MASH. Corporal, Corporal there you go. Uh, and that's the optiones, uh, this guy, the optional guy. Um, and, uh, and then below him, as many as 6,000 soldiers in their unit, and the unit was called a legion. So that was what they had. Say that again, Laura. Well, that's the text we're coming up on. It's the same chapter. Don't worry. This chapter begins and ends with legion. Uh, here it's, here it's a, a commander of a legion who is so concerned about even just one of his servants. And at the end of the chapter, we're going to encounter demons who care nothing for the people that they have possessed. So there's a a terrific contrast, but it's all here in chapter 8. So excellent. That's also partly why I have this here. So we find out about that before we get to it later. So we have this centurion. When he reached Capernaum, a centurion came to him and pleaded with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now this paralysis... Because he also says he's suffering terribly. This doesn't seem to be something that came onto him gradually, but more like, you know, how would you get paralyzed quickly? In a stroke or accident, like a fall or something, injury. Yeah. Um, so, and what could it be? It could be anything. I mean, boy, you fall. I mean, what do they say? A fall of 12 inches can be fatal. You know, it doesn't take a very long fall. I've fallen from a house. 
um, and uh, wrote a small pine tree like a backwards pole vaulter, you know. But uh, but uh, and my I've seen my dad fall from a house more than once. Um, our next door neighbor gave my dad a little homemade trophy of a of a of a little plot of grass with two deep footprints in it from when my dad fell down the house in a rainstorm. He was reshingling our den, hit the plank which acted like a springboard and shot my dad back into the air. So my brother and I watched him go boom and then whoa and down and boom into the wet grass of my neighbor's yard. And there were two footprints in the yard where dad hit. And, uh, you know, of course, yeah, yes, of course, he messed up his knees and ankles and feet and his back and everything else. You mean Capernaum, Herb? Or do you mean my hometown? My, uh, my darling hometown? I'm coming to that. You, you only get to roll your eyebrows or your eyes once at me in class. And I'm still coming to Poinette. So. Um, so Je- but Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. So I wanted you to see where the centurion fits. And then he has many soldiers under him. And he says, I say to this one, go and he goes. To another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. You know, he, he could order anybody. I mean, you must have discipline in the military. Whether it's the army, especially the navy or the air corps. Where if the, 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 especially the captain of a ship, but a commander on a field of battle has got to be able to tell people, do this and they will do it. It has to happen. Um, I was reading just this week, in fact, it was maybe two days ago, of some of the more, I'm sorry, some of the less well known battles of the Pacific. Um, you know, not you know, Pelu and some of those that everybody kind of, or many people kind of know about, but I couldn't even pronounce the name of this Japanese island. It was south of the Philippines, somewhere in between, you know, not up to Okinawa yet, but, but we're getting closer. And there was a fierce, fierce battle on this fairly small island. And one pillbox um, really had command of the entire beach. You know what a pillbox is? Um, it's, it's this... Uh, uh, it's probably a, a cement structure about as big around as maybe this room is, maybe a little bit smaller, with uh, and, and reinforced concrete or cement, but round and with a with a low ceiling, so that you know and and round and 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 because it's reinforced concrete or cement, you know bullets kind of bounce off of it, and it would have um, one or maybe more than one sort of narrow slit window where the occupants can see out to point weaponry. And it might have a big gun or a machine gun. This one, this one had both. Um, but they had to, but the, the, the big gun had to be brought in occasionally to clean out and so forth. Some cannons you still had to do that with in, in, the, in World War II. And they couldn't land anybody on the beach. Every single craft was just getting mowed down by this one gun. And one American sergeant volunteered to go and take it out. The, the general knew he had to have somebody, but he didn't have to order anybody because a guy volunteered. And he actually went with his own gun, machine gun, and jumped through that little slit of a window 
and got inside. He, by the time he got there, he'd already been hit a couple of times. So he was wounded. It, it turned out mortally wounded. But he got inside and with his gun was able to, I'll just say, take possession of the, of the whole pillbox. And then posthumously was granted the Medal of Honor um, for, for what he did. But, um, but uh, this centurion just points out, I've got to be able to order people to do just that. I have to be able to say, go. And our discipline says that if I say go, they'll go. And what he says is, you just have to say this, and you have, you have power and authority much greater, greater than mine. If you say do, it'll happen, whatever it is, whether it's the disease or a soldier. Um, and when Jesus heard this, remember Jesus is in his state of humiliation, so he is, there are some things he has set aside, and although he can read hearts, he, was, he marveled at this man, this centurion's faith. It just stunned him. He said to those who were following him, Amen, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in anyone in Israel. So this, uh, uh, this just blew away anybody else, anyone else that he had met, um, the faith of this Gentile. And then he goes on to say, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean from the east and the west? Say it again. Gentiles. Gentiles. Yeah, Jesus is saying there are going to be other people like this too. There are going to be a lot of Gentiles who are going to come into the kingdom of God and recline at the table. Now, I want to come back to verse 11. Let's continue with Jesus' thought before we come back and see uh, what's going on here, what else is happening in verse 11. Um, but... Um, oh, what did I just do? Is that right? Is that 12? Okay, sorry, I made my screen disappear. Okay, but, okay, but the children of the kingdom, that is the Jews, will be thrown out, and some of them will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus says, here in Israel, there are some who are unbelievers. And the, the image of weeping and gnashing teeth in hell is a pretty common picture. This comes from Isaiah 66. There are other places like that. It's not a place that you want to find out about. When somebody asked, I don't remember if it was Augustine or his pastor Ambrose, I think it was Augustine, one of them asked them about um, what do you think hell will be like? And his response was, you know what, you'd be, you'd be well off if you spent your whole lifetime trying not to find out. It's a pretty good answer. Yeah. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And his servant was healed at that very hour. So as soon as Jesus says, it's done, then the guy went back and found out that's exactly when it happened at that moment. Can we go back to verse 11, though? I wanted to talk about this. So, um, what do you notice about heaven here in this verse? First of all, who else is there, without a doubt? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what are they doing? What does that mean, to recline at the table? They're feasting. They're waiting for their food. They're, they're, they're there to, to eat. 
um, they're reclining at their table. Um, Jameis, would you volunteer to demonstrate for us? Um, could you make, would you mind making the slab of the fireplace your, your uh, reclining seat for, for food? And would you demonstrate what it is to recline at the table? Lay on the bricks. Thank you. There you go. Now, not on your back. You're not an invalid. You're going to lay on your left side. Okay? Like that. Can you all see Jameis? So, in their culture, you always ate with your right hand. So is his right hand free to eat? Yeah. And his left arm, I'm sorry, there's no cushions and stuff. That's probably uncomfortable. You can get, you can get up, Jameis. Let's give him a little bit of a applause there. <laughs> We've done it in the past with a couple of chairs, but I thought the slab would work nicely too. And I got a volunteer instead of doing it myself. So, uh, but that's what they, all they ate on. Um, and we see Jesus reclining at the table later at the Last Supper and so forth. I want to bring it up because uh, occasionally, um, sometimes to my horror, um, our congregation, about every 10 years, does a congregational survey. And uh, thank you, Joanne. I have the same opinion. <laughs> um, that, that the good thing about a congregational survey is you get a lot of input. The bad thing about a congregational survey is sometimes people say very cruel, stinging, and incorrect things about their pastors anonymously. So I can't respond, you know, but it gets said. Um, for example, and I'm going to give you what points to the text here, is that on the, we've done two of them in my time here. Like I said, it's about every 10 years. And um, I think at the second one, someone decided that they would complain that I talked about there being food in heaven. Uh, because I think some people are taught that there's no food in heaven. Um, I don't know if they have a problem with imagining what the plumbing would be like or whatever it would be, but, you know, they can't imagine there being food in heaven. But I don't know what the percentage is. Is it a quarter of all the passages about heaven are about feasting or fruit hanging on trees and stuff like that? Or is it half? I don't know. I've never done the math on that, but it's a lot of passages that talk about heaven and feasting there. And yes, it's true that sometimes in sermons, at that point in my ministry, in those middle years or early years, whatever it'll happen, to, whatever it'll turn out to be, um, I used to occasionally talk about heaven in terms of, I, I, would, I would often use it in terms of, of a description of faith. Um, you don't need to have faith so much when Jesus is passing you the mashed potatoes. You know, that's, that was kind of an illustration I used to use every once in a while. And why not? Because it, the reality is there. That was my point. But then I had a couple of, 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 I could tell by the handwriting that they were ladies who were offended by that. And notice, I said mashed potatoes. Because I have a preference with regard to what kind of potatoes I want there to be in heaven. And they're always mashed. <laughs> always mashed potatoes. With gobs of butter and pepper and, you know, all the good stuff. 
And I, I had, I, I, and it was a couple of different individuals who objected to my saying that there would be, quote, baked potatoes in heaven. So I have two problems with that. One is theologically, you can't justify that. And also, I never said there will be baked potatoes in heaven. I, mashed potatoes. I, uh, Okay, I've vented enough. Thank you very much for the counseling session. Let's go on with our text. So, verse 14. When, this again is an artist's rendition, but a pretty good one of what we think is, is Peter's house. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever. Um, now, in, in one of the Gospels, it's not clear that Jesus saw her, but God told about her. Here, Jesus actually sees her. I think it was pretty obvious, though, that there's maybe usually a spot next to Peter's wife for, for her mom, and she's not there at the table. You know, where is she? Well, she's in bed with a fever. So Peter and his wife invite Jesus to their home knowing that mom needs healing, right? But they don't actually ask Jesus. But do you, don't you think that that was their, one part of their intention? Was let's have him come to our... I mean, they could have gone to Andrew's house, right? Or Philip or... Nathaniel or somebody, but no, it's Peter's house and because mom is sick. Well, they, they, they get him there and, uh, and there she's sick in bed with a fever. Um, now he touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to serve him. So why touch her hand? You know, it's just one of those things where Jesus does it. He often will touch a person he's healing not always, but often he'll touch the person. Um, sometimes it's so that they'll know who it is. Like with that deaf mute guy, Jesus puts his fingers in the guy's ears and spits on his tongue. Well, I mean, if, if he couldn't hear the gospel, he needed to know who it was who was healing him. So know that it's me and then we'll, I'll preach when, once you're healed. And with this, um, in this case, um, he, she's in bed with a fever, but he touches her hand of all things. If your uh, baby has a fever, where do you touch the baby to find out about the fever? Forehead. With a child, probably forehead. With a baby, not always. My wife used to like touch cheek to cheek with the baby as a different way of doing it. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure why she did that, but she did it. I, maybe it was just more affectionate. Or something like that. But Kath also didn't trust her own hands. You know, because uh, sometimes your hand is hot or cold or whatever. But cheek to cheek is more like room temperature and, you know, just get to know what's going on there. But uh, the fever left her. And now if, if the fever left me, I might sit up and say, oh, bring me a glass of water. You know, I'm going to put my feet up. I need to recover, you know, or whatever. But what does she do? She gets up and begins to serve. Um, I sometimes think that the greatest service any one of us can do in the kingdom of God is to simply do whatever task it is that's in front of you. Just do it to God's glory, whatever it might be. Are you familiar with the Luther quote? That the mother does more for the kingdom of God with her toe than all of the monks in the monastery. Do you know that one? What's the mom doing with her toe? She's rocking a cradle with her foot on the floor. And the monks in the monastery aren't helping anybody. 
you know, so. Say that again. Yeah. Some of them unintentional, depending on what it is in your house. But I, I often think about that, though, twice a day when I'm cleaning my litter box for my kittens. You know, this is the task appointed to me. I need to do this for the kingdom of God right now. Um, after all, Proverbs 12, verse 10, the righteous man sees to the needs of his animal. You know, you got to take care of the critters in your life. Um, I have a fish in my office named Pickle. I got to feed her twice a day. Um, she came in a trade, uh, and uh, 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 Gus Scharf, Nate's youngest son, decided to trade me. He swapped me something for the goldfish. So I've got the goldfish. Yeah. I wanted to have fish in my office, and this is what I've got. So. That's, that's Mrs. I'm not sure if it's Mrs. or Mr. So I just call it pickle, you know, but, uh, but to be fed twice a day. So this, but Peter, oh, and we learned something else here. If Peter has a mother-in-law, then Peter also has a wife. Could she have been dead? Well, maybe, except the first Corinthians tells us that she wasn't. First Corinthians nine, tell, Paul tells us that Peter and the other apostles take their wives around with them when they go to preach. So Peter and his wife would go places and, and the other apostles do. In fact, Paul says, all of the other apostles do except Barnabas and me. Paul and Barnabas were evidently either not married or, well, I, I've maybe gone into other times when I think of possibly Paul's marriage and what happened to it. Um, Paul had been a Pharisee and as a Pharisee, could Paul have been unmarried? It would be unlikely to be a true Pharisee and, be, and not be married. It would be difficult. But Paul had a thorn in the flesh, something that bothered him. Could Paul's wife have maybe left him because of his Christianity? Um, I'm not sure about that, Will. I've, I've never thought of a wife in those terms. Although Luther sometimes teasingly called his wife Catherine Katena, which kind of sounds like Katie, but Katena is the Latin word for chain. Yeah, as in ball and. Yeah, so he would sometimes tease her by calling her my, my Katena, my Katie, that way. That verse is in five places in Proverbs. The corner of the roof proverb. Yeah, better, better, to, better to have a dripping faucet or whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, that, um. But when I hear that passage in Proverbs, I always, in my mind, uh, remind myself that this is also God's opinion of me. Uh, not just of, of, of a nagging wife, but... It would be better for God to live in a corner of a roof than have to put up with me all the time. So this is, this is the bride of the church and not just the bride of Solomon. Solomon, you weren't all that great of shakes as a husband either. Ask your wife's 999 rival wives what, uh, what she thought of them. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. 
So they, he's healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law and she, maybe the neighbors have seen her. Hey, you know, what's, uh, you know, whatever, Judith or whatever her name was, what's she doing out, you know, getting water or taking out the trash or putting up the laundry or whatever she's doing? I thought she had a fever, but she looks healed. Jesus must have healed her. And now they begin to bring all of their sick people to Jesus and he begins to heal all of them too, one after another. Can you imagine trying to have a conversation that evening or if they're playing a board game or something? You know, you know hey Jesus, I landed on Park Place, you know, or Boardwalk or something. Well, hang on, I've got to heal somebody. You know, just constantly all night that night. Um, and this was to, spoke, to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet he took up our weaknesses and carried away our diseases. Um, so he heals and heals and heals and heals. By the way, if we were in the Gospel of Mark, do you know what chapter we'd be up to by now? We would almost be to the end of chapter 1. That's how much Mark has condensed things. But we are well into the second year of Jesus' ministry here. The, the year of popularity. Soon he'll be feeding 5,000 and 4,000 and doing other things. Um, and we have uh, coming up the, um, what I'll call next Tuesday, the scary scene in the Gerizines. As Jesus goes to a cemetery and encounters two men there possessed by legions of demons. Um, but I think we'll just stop there for tonight. So until then, I'll see you next week. God bless you. And thank you again for letting me do this. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Orleans, Minnesota.